but again, you know, thank you for coming tonight, and I have the pleasure of introducing our guest speaker, uh, which is a patent attorney, Michael Blake. And uh, our speaker this month has experience uh, in and degrees in mechanical engineering as well as law and patents. This combination is especially valuable as Michael is able to apply his vast experience to the field of innovation and invention. Here's Wes. Hi, Wes. Um, Michael serves uh, the innovators community in a multitude of ways, from teaching courses on intellectual property to sitting on the board of the most uh, active innovators association. So please help me welcome Michael Blake. Hi everyone, I'm Mike Blake. I'm a I'm the patent attorney here, and I've got some business cards. If anyone wants them, just uh, feel free to grab them. I'll put them here. Um, the title page of this is a little bit wrong. I was going to talk about the American America Invents Act and how how that's going to change things. So it's not going to be intellectual property basics. And um, I was told I can talk for an hour, including time for questions within that hour. So I'll try to keep it, you know, around half hour, 40 minutes, so you guys can, have, can ask me questions. Uh, but just a little bit about myself, Karen gave a nice introduction, but I am in Milford, Connecticut, hour and a half away, a little less than an hour and a half away. Um, and I have clients all over the United States, so you actually don't have to come and visit me if you want uh, to work with a patent attorney, because it's a federal practice, and you can work with a patent attorney anywhere, basically. Um, so uh, I can work with you by phone, fax, email. So let's, uh, oh, and I've been a patent attorney since 2000, and well, since 1997, but I've been, uh, I, I started, once I got a law school, I did, general litigation. So I did all sorts of litigation, not uh, patent litigation or copyright, it just all sorts. And then starting in 2001, I, I started doing uh, patent law exclusively. And I went uh, started my own practice in 2004 in uh, West Hartford, Connecticut. And then I moved in uh, to uh, Milford, Connecticut around 2005, and I've been there ever since. So let's uh, start talking about America Invents Act. And uh, if you have any questions about what I'm talking about, please feel feel free to raise your hand, and, and I'll try to clear anything up. Okay, the America Invents Act. Uh, it was signed into law on uh, September 16th, and it's generally effective September 26th. Some portions of the law were effective on September 16th. Others are effective September 26th. Others are effective a year later or 18 months later. And uh, it just depends on what portion of the act we're talking about. So some of the most important things I thought for new inventors are what are the new fees going to be? As of uh, September 26, there's an across-the-board 15% increase in all fees, just about. Um, so that includes uh, small entity fees that I'm sure a lot of you who are inventors who may be solo inventors or work for a small company, your fees are typically one half of what a large corporation with over 500 employees would pay. Um, so what I chart, what if you file electronically and, and you're a small entity, currently you pay, not currently, but prior to September 26, you were paying $462 for utility patent application filing fee. Um, 
Now it's gone up by 15%, so it's around 530, I think. Um, for provisional patent applications, it's now $125 for a small entity. It used to be 110 prior to September 26. So it's gone on 15%. It's not a whole lot. But the neat new thing is wh where a lot of almost all solo inventors would fall under is the micro entity. That's a new entity they've created at the patent office. And you get a 75% discount. Um, so basically, it's going to work out to half of what the small entity fee was. So right now the small entity fee for a patent application would be around 530 so if you're a micro entity you'll pay about half that which is whatever that works out to be 270 or so and these laws um, the actual exact fees haven't even been um, I think they just came out with the new fee schedule and, and I didn't print it out yet but I think it just came out within the last few like week or so um, but how do you qualify to be a micro entity? Basically, you have to have income under 150 grand a year, and where they get that number is it's uh, three times the median e income of U.S. people, which is currently $49,000. So, if you make less than three times that, you probably will fall in the micro entity status. And you also cannot have filed more than four non-provisional patent applications. And you can, can't have uh, licensed your invention to a large entity. Okay. So, for all you people who may be filing a patent application, make sure to ask your patent attorney or patent agent you know, to look into the micro-entity status so you can save quite a bit of money. So the next big change was uh, we're now more of a first to file type country. We used to be first to invent, which means if you're an inventor and you're the first one to invent, but you didn't file a patent application first, and someone else invented independently, and they filed a patent application before you did, where, where you're the first inventor, someone else came up with the same invention on his own, but after you, and he filed a patent application before you, you could basically invalidate his patent by proving, if you could, that you invented before he did. Okay, The rest of the world did not do that though. The rest of the world is a first to file type of uh, uh, scheme where whoever files a patent application first gets the rights to that patent and it didn't matter if that person invented first or not. The United States as of September 26th we've changed to mostly a first to file type system. We're not a pure first to file because we have a grace period and, and that is um, if you public if, if you publish uh, your invention like in a paper or you go to a trade show and disclose your invention um, and you file a patent application within one year of that first publication you still will have the rights to your patent. That first publication will not uh, be can will not be able to be used against you. Okay. Uh, however, if 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 you invent it first and you wait six months and then you file a patent application, someone invented after you but filed a patent application 
one month before you did, that new person will get the right to that patent application. They independently invented it. Okay. Uh, one little thing about this law is though, if you invented first, let's just come up with a date, November 1st, 2011, um, and then you publish a paper on December 1st, 2011. Someone reads that paper and then files a patent application on January 1st, 2012, before you did. Um, that person does not have the rights to that invention or that patent if, if his invention, if his patent was based on your paper that you wrote. Especially if you file your patent application within one year of your publication of that paper, you can knock that guy out who copied your paper. Yes? What do you, what do you mean file early and often? Couldn't you just file once? Um, file early is that, and often. Is that just jargon? I mean, uh, is that just tone? Well, that has to do with um, you file early. That, that's, uh, I guess you understand that part. Um, yeah. It used to be that you, you didn't have to file early because it, we're a first to invent country. So you didn't have to file first. But now you ought to file first. File often, what that is talking about is any improvements you make to your invention, you probably ought to file a patent application to cover it. So that's what we're talking about. File often. And, and almost always, as you're developing your invention, you're going to come up with improvements. Like if you go into the manufacturing process, there's going to be problems manufacturing your device. The solutions to those problems are almost always, not almost always, but oftentimes they can be patentable subject matter. And if you want to protect that patentable subject matter, you, want to, you need to file a patent application to cover it. Oh, and the, the first to file provisions don't actually go into effect until March 16, 2013. Yes, sir. Will there still be a patent pending? Yeah, uh, but only after you file your patent application. Not publishing your patent, publishing your paper that describes your invention, like in some trade journal, that's not going to be patent pending. Right. You actually have to file a patent application, right. and you will still have patent pending. And we year. and we still have for what well, what? For a year. No, well, that's for a provisional patent application. Well, yeah. That's yeah. If you file a provisional patent application, that will last a year, and then you st we still have the provisional patent application. That did not go away, and the idea behind that is you file that. You don't have to comply with all the rules of the patent office, and but the idea is you're supposed to file the full patent application within one year of your filing date, and you still have patent pending. Um, yes, sir. Uh, what does the patent office do with your provisional application once the time elapses? Well, if you don't file another one, they don't do anything with it. it it's gone abandoned, and uh, it's kept secret, basically, if you, if you didn't file a non-provisional within one year. If you do file a non-provisional within one year, then that will become the part of the record of your non-provisional, and it will be available to the public at some point. 18, basically, it will be available to the public 18 months after you file your original patent application. So when time elapses, they don't just toss it and still keep it? They basically do toss it. Oh, okay. When time elapses, if you don't file a non-provisional within one year, they do toss it. Okay. And, it and it can't be used against anybody. It, it's secret. It's never been published. And it won't get published. Yes? What's the correct term for the second application? Is that, a, is that an amendment, an addendum? Uh, 
Uh, it's just the actual technical correct term is a non-provisional patent application, and yeah. and the way you identify it is it's a non-provisional that claims priority to your provisional. You're claiming the original filing date to your provisional. Well, you what, if, what if the provision? What if you only have at the time of 11 months and, and 29 days? You have only a uh, provisional. Uh, you have only a, a technical a technical addendum that you want to add a manufacturing process to your provisional patent. Do you have to? Should is it better to go with a, a full patent or a non-provisional patent and then incorporate the addendum? Well, if you if you've improved your provisional, uh, yeah. you filed a provisional, and then you improved the invention over that year, and you're asking, well, what do you do at the end of that year? I mean, some people, this is an extra legal operation that I'm going to describe to you. Some people file another provisional application within one year of the first provisional. Um, that's not talked about in the rules or the law, but you can do that. Um, I don't recommend it, but it's 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 an option. Uh, you can do that as long as you've kept your invention secret for that one year. Then you don't have any problems with the, a public disclosure or, or if you haven't made an offer to sell it either. Um, the problem that you could run into though, let's say, uh, you know, we used to have this grace period where you file if you make a public disclosure of your invention or even an offer to sell it, you had one year from that first public disclosure offer to sell to file your patent applications. And so what a lot of people would do is they make a public disclosure and they file a provisional within one year of that first public disclosure. Well, when that year runs out, if they decide, well, we don't have any interest in this invention, let's just file another provisional, well, that one year grace period is over because you started off with that public disclosure, you filed a provisional, you waited a year, then you filed another provisional, you have that, it's been over a year since your first public disclosure basically. So that's one of the problems you, you would run into with that. So you actually protected during the second year? Well, you're protected in that you have patent pending status during the second year. Um, there could be some problems with international patent applications though because uh, you're supposed to when you file an international, a PCT, a patent cooperation treaty application, that's supposed to claim priority to the very first patent application that you filed covering the same subject matter. And that technically would include the very first provisional you filed. Um, but if you do that, then you, you've gone past the one year time frame because the way the PCT application works is when you file an international patent application and you want to be able to claim priority to your US application, you have to file within one year of your first U.S. application, your first U.S. application. So if you file one provisional, then a year later you file a second provisional, then a year after that you file a PCT, your PCT doesn't have valid priority to that very first provisional. And then some people say, well, we won't claim priority to the first provisional, we'll claim priority to the second provisional. But technically, according to the PCT rules, you're only allowed to claim priority to the very first patent application that covered the same subject matter. So you may have uh, really hurt yourself with your international patent protection if you file more than one provisional. And this, I'm sure this must be tough to follow, sorry. No, I, I, it was, 
it was my belief that if you use a provisional patent to begin with, that the, the PCT doesn't recognize provisional patents. Oh, they do. They do. They do? Some individual countries, I've heard, uh, will give you some trouble if your provisional does not have claims in it. Um, I haven't run into this problem myself, but I, I understand some countries, I'm not sure which ones, require that the priority patent application, the one that you're claiming priority to, must have claims in it that describe the invention. And a lot of people, including me, write provisionals that don't have claims in it because they're not required. Uh, so that could be a problem, but I've never run into that problem. Yes, sir. Okay, so what's the, pro what's the definition of provisional patent as compared to patent pending? Is that the same thing or not? Uh, they're similar. A patent pending is the status you have or your invention has after you file the patent application. And it doesn't matter if it's a provisional patent application or a non-provisional patent application. Once you file a patent application, it doesn't matter what type, you have patent pending until you get a final rejection and your patent goes abandoned. Then you don't have patent pending anymore. Or if your patent application issues, then you don't have patent pending anymore. You have an issued patent. Yes, sir. Yeah, PCT, um, is that for, like, a, I know it's international filing, but is that for a select group of countries or do you have to pick the countries individually? Um, the way that works is PCT stands for the Patent Cooperation Treaty, and something like 130 countries are members of that treaty. So just about any country you can think of that, that is economically viable is a member of PCT. Um, so it's not a select group. It's, it's almost every country in the world. But the way it works is you file a PCT application within one year of your priority document, which is usually a U.S. application if you're a U.S. citizen. You file your U.S. application, and within one year you file your PCT. And then um, a total of 30 months after your priority date, which would be an additional 18 months after your one-year period, you, that's when you select the individual countries you're going to go into with your PCT. That's called the national stage. So what you do is... You, Typically, you file a U.S. patent application on day one. A year later, you file your PCT application. 18 months after that, you tell the PCT office which countries you want to enter into the national stage. So those countries could be Great Britain, uh, uh, Germany, China, Japan. And then at that point, the PCT office will submit your patent application to the individual patent offices of those countries, and they will be examined in those countries. That's the way that works. Okay, okay another change to the uh, patent laws is uh, false marking cases. Uh, there was a recent case, uh, this Forest Group versus Bond Tool, where uh, third parties were suing companies for having false marking for they were suing companies that were listed listing products as being patented where the product may have patented stamped on it or on the uh, packaging or even patent pending when in fact the country I mean not the country the uh, 
the business did not have a patent pending or an issued or valid patent anymore. And you get $500 per um, uh, invalid marking. So if someone's selling 10,000 units a year, that's 10,000 times 500. That a third party could sue. Third party might not even be a competitor. There's just some, usually there's just law firms suing companies trying to make money for false marking. Well, that's been changed. Uh, after the Amer American Invents Act, only the United States can sue for false marking now. And competitors can sue for false marking, but not for that $500 uh, damage per unit. What they sue for is uh, damages that they actually receive uh, because uh, of competition. So any lost sales they may have had. Uh, that, that's, that's the change. So for solo inventors, independent inventors, you know, you used to have to be very careful about whether or not you mark patented or patent pending. You should still be careful, but now you, you're not looking at that $500 fine if you just make a mistake. What, what a lot of times would happen is patents last for 20 years, and so people or companies would sell products that would say patented, and the patent would expire after 20 years, and they would forget or just not take off that patented off new uh, production of that uh, device and they would be liable for $500 per, per unit. Um, now that's pretty much gone away unless the uh, United States sues you for that. And they probably would only sue you if they thought you were doing this on purpose to try to get, gain some advantage knowing that you didn't have a valid uh, patent application pending or an issued patent. Now this last, not last one, but next one is uh, about joinder and consolidation. This is an attempt in the current law to curtail patent troll litigations. Right now what patent trolls can do, well prior to the new law, what they could do is they would buy up patents and typically they didn't make or sell any of the devices that were covered by the patents, but they would sue companies that, would, that made products that they could arguably assert infringed this patent. And these patent trolls oftentimes would sue tens or, tw or even hundreds of defendants in one lawsuit. File one lawsuit, name 100 defendants, and then uh, send out demand letters to all these defendants saying, you know, pay up, otherwise we're going to go through litigation, it's going to cost you a lot of money. Um, and then a lot of people would have to pay up because just to defend a frivolous lawsuit is going to be expensive. So a lot of companies would just pay to get, get rid of this uh, lawsuit. Well, now the law has changed, and patent trolls, or any uh, in anybody, any plaintiff who's going to sue for patent infringement, you can't add a bunch of defendants into one case unless there's a uh, some sort of connection between the different defendants. And the connections is here um, that basically <coughs> that there has... It has to arise out of the same transaction amongst all the defendants, and there has to be questions of fact common to all defendants. And what the patent trolls were doing, there, there, there was almost no connection between all the defendants in this one lawsuit, except that they may have infringed this one patent. Like the defendants could be in different parts of the country, they could sell different devices, but they arguably infringed the patent. Well, well that's gone away now. We'll see. We'll see if patent trolls have done away, though. 
I kind of don't think they have. Now, um, when you file a patent application, you're supposed to disclose the best mode of your invention. What that means is at the time of filing, you're supposed to tell or describe in your patent application the best way to practice your invention. Um, and if you didn't, then if you ever tried to assert your invention, I mean, assert your patent against the defendant and claim they infringe your uh, patent, one of the defenses they can make is, oh, you didn't disclose the best mode in your patent application, therefore your patent is invalid. Well, the American Invents Act got rid of that. But you still are required to disclose your best mode, but there's really no teeth to that requirement because your patent, if it issues, won't be invalidated if you fail to disclose your best mode. So why didn't they just take out the best mode requirement? I don't know. But your patent, if it issues, and you fail to disclose your best mode, uh, cannot be invalidated for failure to disclose best mode. And the reason for that is uh, the deal with patents in the United States is you're supposed to disclose to the public your invention. And you're not supposed to hide the ball. You're not supposed to hide anything from the public. In return for disclosing your invention to the public, you get a 20-year monopoly. So you get 20 years where you can stop other people from making your invention. But in order to get that monopoly, you're supposed to disclose everything you know at the time of filing about your invention. So let's say you have an invention of vulcanizing rubber. Uh, so you can make rubber for automobile tires that will last for 100,000 miles, let's say. And your invention talks about you, you heat the rubber in an oven at a certain temperature and you add certain... Uh, materials to the to the raw material well if you hide some of that stuff if you knew oh uh, I can make my tires last for 150,000 miles if, if I add a certain amount of carbon and, and other and elements but I'm not going to disclose that in my patent because I want to keep that for myself so my competitors won't know it I'll just disclose the stuff that will let the tires run for 75,000 miles well that's the best mode that you're keeping to yourself and it used to be that if you didn't disclose it, your patent would be invalidated. But they got rid of that. <coughs> post-grant review. <coughs> right now, we have post-grant... Well, right now, prior to um, September 26th, we had two types of post-grant review. They were called re-examinations, an inter-parties re-examination, re or an ex-party re-examination. Well, now they've changed it and I think it's for the better. Uh, now they have a thing called a post-grant review. It's not a re-examination. But you're only allowed to file that up until nine months after the grant of a patent. So you have nine, once a patent is granted, and let's say you're a competitor and you see this patent gets allowed, and you're saying, wait a minute, that patent never should, should have been allowed because I'm making and selling this product for the last 10 years that's covered by that patent. So it's not new. It, should, it never should have been patented you can file a post-grant review to try to get that patent invalidated, but you have to file that within nine months of the issue date. Um, and it has lower standards than the old re-examinations. And one of the good things is that a uh, final determination on this post-grant review that you file will be made within one year. 
or maybe 18 months for good cause. They'll extend it to 18 months. I'm involved with the reexamination where the petition, and, and this is under the old law, that the petition was filed probably in like March of 2009. And here we are in October 2011. It's still pending. Under this law, the post-grant review, it, it would have been long decided by now. Let's get this. And we still have an inter-parties review. Inter-parties means that the parties can both communicate about the post-grant review. What that means is uh, a third party who doesn't like the fact that your patent was issued, they can file an, an inter-parties uh, re-examination. Um, but then the patent owner can also make a response and say, oh, they're wrong for these reasons. The ex-party re-examination only allows one party to have any discussions uh, with the patent office. But we still have an inter-parties review uh, that, that's kind of like the re-examination, but that takes place after nine months. And um, and this is the, uh, you have to show this to be able to get your inter-parties review heard. You have to make a showing that there's a reasonable likelihood that you would prevail with your review. And also, this requires a final determination within one year or at most 18 months after you file your petition. So these things are, are going to speed up uh, post-issue uh, post review. So if, if, and the reason why this is being done is because a lot of people were saying all these patents are getting issued and a lot of them should not be issued. But it's very expensive and very time-consuming to get a post-grant review heard and decided on. Now they're, they're trying to streamline that and make it much quicker to get a post-grant review. So hopefully this will get rid of a lot of the bad patents that are being issued by the patent office. So that's pretty much it, my talk about the America Invents Act. Um, are there any questions? Yes. Question about the fees. Um, the new fees that are coming out or have come out, are those already enforced? Uh, well, the 15% increase is enforced. The micro entity fees are not enforced yet because um, the Patent Office has to m make the rules and come up with the exact requirements for what will fall into the micro entities. What I read to you was the broad requirements under the, the law that was enacted, but the Patent Office has to come up with the exact rules, which will have a lot more detail. And um, I looked at the USBTO website, and, and they say more information is forthcoming. So, so. Do, you, do you think, let's say, they do get approved within a month or two, are those fees applicable? Well, they won't be retroactive, but um, any like any new fees, like for uh, continuation filings, or uh, they will be applicable for that, but only once the rules are enacted. 
and they haven't been enacted yet. But, but not for a patent that, um, let's say, it'll be approved within a, a month or two. Probably not. Well, what, what the patent office has to do is that they have to write up these rules based on the new law that was just enacted. They publish the rules. They're going to get comments from the public on the rules. Then they'll revise the rules, and then they'll enact the rules. So we're looking probably at a year, 18 months before those rules are, will get enacted. Yeah. The 150K micro, uh, you mentioned the three times per capita or something of that nature. Yeah. Do you know if that's per person or per household? You know, people file jointly and in other ways. So do you know how that's figured? Well, um, I, I think it's by the inventor. So if you're the only inventor, then it's going to go by your income. Um, if, you, if, you, if you file jointly with your wife, seventy-five thousand, and now is it? Am I? You know, I, sort of a tough question. You wouldn't think it until you got to it, but that was the first thing when you said it was three times this figure. Mm -hmm. I wondered if that was a per capita figure, or a, I don't see why they would work on a household basis. You know, you know that's hopefully that'll be disclosed in the new rules once they come up with it how you calculate the exact number and, and what salaries, what income will count towards that 150. I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, my guess is what they'll do is if you file jointly, but your income alone is less than 150, then you, you could submit some sort of declaration saying that. Saying I filed jointly, we make 175, but my salary alone is 125. Then you, you should, my guess is then you'll qualify for a micro entity. But it all depends on what the rules finally say. We, and we don't know what they're going to say. Yes? The Inter-Park has reviewed that that's, you said that it'll prevent the issuing of bad patents. It, it seems to me that a third party could be uh, an individual that goes up against a big company and says, hey, that's my idea, or, or for whatever reason it's a bad patent. What is a bad patent in the first place? But could it be that a, now big companies are going to be more able to block patents from small patent to people applying? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's bad. It's not a bad patent being affected. It's bad that powerful, wealthy entities can take away the privileges of individuals. Yeah, that's that's the other side of the argument. And um, I belong to this organization called National Association National Association of Patent Practitioners, and a lot of us represent independent inventors. And our organization was against the America Invents Act um, for that reason, because it seems to be more geared towards wealthy, bigger entities as opposed to the individual inventors. Because for that reason, uh, the uh, new post-grant review kind of favors them because they'll be able to afford to file these petitions because they're still expensive. They may happen quicker, but they're expensive. And individual inventors aren't going to usually have resources to file these post-grant reviews against IBM. Or to defend against them. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. That would, I mean, that just being just the fear of being taken to court by a big company is enough to, you know, take most people to their knees, you know. Right, but um, you know, there's going to be hopefully an impartial judge is going to be the patent office is going to review this, and so hopefully they can, uh, if they believe the patent office believes it's a valid patent, they'll leave it alone. But you still have to defend it. You, you actually don't have to defend it. Like if you're a small inventor and a big company files one of these post-grant reviews against you, against your patent, 
you really don't have to respond. And if the patent office does not agree with the petitioner, the third party, they will uh, keep the patent valid. But but it could just give them the privilege to march all over the patent without paying royalties. Well, well, yeah. I mean, you want to you want to get your side heard is what I my point was going to be. You want to get your side heard if you're the patent owner saying why the other side who's trying to invalidate your patent is wrong. You want to explain that to the patent office. And if you file it yourself, it should be relatively inexpensive. It should be free, actually, because whoever files a petition for this post-grant review, they're paying all the fees. And if you're the patent owner, you don't have to pay any fees except to your patent attorney. And if you're filing it yourself, if you're making your own arguments, then there aren't going to be any fees for that. But it will take a lot of time, a lot of research. And I, and I wouldn't recommend you doing it on your own without a patent attorney. I, I know a lot of bottles of, bottles of whiskey around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, do you know the current uh, PCT fee? And also, is there an additional fee for the countries you decide to yeah. uh, enter into? Yeah. Um, it's around $2,800 when you file a PCT application. That's just the government fee. Um, I charge $1,000 to file it, so it'd be, you're looking at about 3800 total. And so that's just for the PCT application. And then 18 months later, when you go into the individual countries, you have to pay the individual countries' patent office fees. You know, just like when you file in the U.S., you have to pay the U.S. patent office a fee. Well, those countries all still want their fees. Um, and that could range anywhere from, for some cheap comp uh, countries like Malaysia, they're fairly inexpensive, only a couple hundred dollars in fees there, versus if you go European Union, you could select the European Union as one of the countries, even though it's not a country, it's a union, but you could select them as one entity. That could be several thousand dollars for them, just in government fees. But that's you know thirty months down the road after your U.S. patent application, so it's expensive, and you know you only file if you think you're going to make and sell these products that's covered by your invention in those countries. When you said twenty-eight hundred, I thought you were going to say twenty-eight thousand. <laughs> no, not twenty-eight thousand, but uh, sounds like they'll settle that and get down the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you don't even have maintenance fees. You, I mean, you have those, but you have uh, <laughs> renewal fees. What a lot of countries do is, when your patent application is just sitting in the patent office in Canada, for instance, you have to pay a renewal fee every year, just to wait in line at the patent office. Here in the U.S., once you file a patent application, you don't pay any other fees, basically, until your patent issues, right? But in Canada, I think Canada is one of the countries, you file a patent application, and if they don't get to it for four years, you have to pay a renewal fee every year to renew the patent application. Because the idea there is the Canadian Patent Office does not want to examine a patent application that you're not interested in anymore. And they think if, you, if they require you to pay a fee to keep it going, that'll weed out the people who uh, have you know, walked away from their invention and don't want to deal with anymore. Yes? Are there like a core group of countries that most American inventors kind of work with or uh, kind of want to enter into? Yeah, it really depends on your market, on where you're going to sell stuff. So you might have some sort of product that could sell really well in India for some reason, but not do so well in Europe for whatever reason. 
Um, so it just depends on what your product is and what your market is. Any other questions? Yes, Karen. So talk to me about the Avengers notebook with this new bot. Do we even keep yeah. on our notebooks? Uh, that's a good question. Because you don't, you don't need to prove your data inventorship anymore. Really, the only time you would need to prove it is, and you would have proved it already, is if you publish a paper. And that's proof right there by itself. So it would seem that an inventor's notebook is not that important anymore if you're only keeping it to prove your date of conception of the invention. And that's the reason why it was recommended that people keep an inventor's notebook is for this reason, is to predate another inventor who may have filed a patent application before you, or what used to happen in, under the prior law is once you file a patent application and if the patent office, well, they always do, they always examine your patent application, they do a, a prior art search, and if they reject your patent application based on another patent or a patent application that was published, under the old law, if it's a fairly recent patent application, if you could prove that you invented before that patent application was published, you could predate your invention and basically tell the patent office that you they cannot use that patent that patent document against you if you could prove that you invented before that patent document was published or a patent application was filed. I don't know if that made sense. Are they grandfathered in? No, I mean, no, now as of September 26th, no, I'm sorry, uh, these uh, first-to-file rules don't take it into effect until March 16th, 2013, 18 months from now. So when you say publish, what are you talking about? Where you, where's one publish? That's a good question. They didn't, we don't know. That's a big argument going on amongst the inventors in the patent world. Uh, published might mean that you find some little technical library in the corner of Denmark that doesn't index their materials and you publish a little paper describing your invention in that little library and so it's not really available to the public. You know, Technically it is, but if it's not indexed, and if it's just published in that little library in their little magazine that has a subscription of five people, maybe, um, is that going to be is that going to count? I don't know. The, the rules have not been promulgated yet, so we don't know. What I think the patent, what, what I think the Congress meant when they enacted this was some publication that is available to the public in general. So probably some sort of internet publication or some. <coughs> Some journal or magazine that's widely available. Yes. Um, when you're talking about the first to file law that's coming into effect, um, and the notebook, you know, is no longer going to be valid. How does one protect themselves from just even in conversation about your about your, you know, your invention or whatever? Is there is is a waiver still valid? Do people still sign a waiver? Yeah, yeah. yeah. If it's a first to file, well, what's um, your protection? Um, you want them to sign some sort of confidentiality agreement, right? 
specific to your invention uh, or non-disclosure agreement, um, a waiver, it's not the right term, but... I didn't mean to say yeah. I, I knew, yeah. But, but to right. be exact, yeah, you, you, yeah, before you disclose your invention, well, first of all, if you have an invention and you haven't filed a patent application, don't tell anybody about right. it. Right. Okay, that's the number one rule. If you're going to tell people about it, get them to sign a document saying that with respect to this invention, and you want to identify the invention in the document, like, so what if you invent a new car freshener? You want to say car freshener invention that whoever signs this document promises not to disclose it, use it, sell it, make it, and those are valid. Okay. Now the inventor's notebook, uh, those aren't necessarily invalid. Those will be could be helpful to help prove that you invented something, and maybe it could help you prove that someone looked at it, that they got their idea from your inventor's notebook, and you know, first to file, uh, part, one of the things about first to file is if someone who filed before you got their idea from you, they don't have a valid claim to that invention. So if you publish a paper and, the, and then they file a patent application one month after your paper was published, they don't have the right to that patent. You still have a right to it as long as you file within one year. Because you published it. Yeah. Yeah. Wherever that publishing took place. Right. <laughs> well, you have to prove, uh, or prove that it was very likely that they saw it. I mean, if it was in this proverbial five-person one in Denmark, it yeah. would seem like the court would say, well, there's no way he saw that. So he, he validly thought it up a month later himself. Well, yeah, there, there had to be some court determination. Who would they believe? You know, And then if you had an inventor's notebook, that could help prove up that you were the actual inventor and the other guy or gal that doesn't have any documents that support the fact that he or she invented that, then you're in a much better position to prove that you actually invented it and the other person copied you. Even with the first to file law coming into effect? The first to file means that it doesn't allow someone to steal the invention from you. First to file means you have to be an actual inventor to, to file a patent application. That's still the law here in the United States. But if they independently invented something without looking at your notes, they just happened to invent the same thing, uh -huh. and they filed before you, then they have superior rights to you to that invention. Hmm. Is that hard to prove? <laughs> well, this is all new legislation, yeah. so it's going to be... Yeah. Uh, you know, i, I got to say, uh, prior to September 26th, the way you figured out who was the first inventor mm. was a, an interference proceeding at the patent office. And th you know, there's a number of those, but I never ran into one of those. Th those are relatively rare, where two in individuals or corporations or whatever, two entities invent the same thing around the same time and file patents on it around the same time. Mm. That's pretty rare. So that's not what I would worry about so much. Um, but on the other hand, it's a big country, it's a big world. A lot of people think about the same problems at the same time, so the sooner you file a patent application, you probably do better. That's probably the safest course. And if you don't have the money for a full patent application, then at least file a provisional. Mm -hmm. Or, under the new law, if you don't have the money for a provisional, you can publish a paper 
there, there might be websites coming online in the near future based on this law where you just submit a paper and it will be published for a relatively cheap price or no price at all and it will be considered the public and then you have a year from that date to file your provisional or, or non-provisional patent application. So it, it can almost seemingly be as something as simple as maybe um, an article in the local reminder about, is that like outlandish what I'm saying? That, that, could, be, that could be, you know. Is that considered published? Well, the rules haven't been promulgated, so we don't know exactly uh -huh. what a publication is going to mean. But if the reminders, like the weekly newspapers that we're talking about, that yeah, goes like to the neighborhoods. Yeah, it's got <coughs> articles in there and some lot yeah, of Yeah, that, that, I would think that's a publication to the public. Um, but then I don't know if the, if the patent office has come up with the rules. Maybe the rules might say it has to be indexed on a computer where you can access it through the internet. I don't know if the reminder is wow. searchable on the internet. Hmm. I doubt it. Yes, sir. Mike, now just to clarify, you're talking about this publish it gives you sort of a year, but is it correct that let's say that we assume that there's 10 people out there at any given time that are all thinking about these inventions, some of them went this far, some of them went this far, there's no reason to take that year, is there? Because somebody else might see the published thing, and they're not going from your published thing, but they saw it. They, they were still inventing that on their own. Now they're, they go in and file. They still have the background for a year or two of them fiddling around. You know, they have some proof. They still get it. So, so there's, it seems like, there's, am I correct that they're, this thing of like having this year, is that doing any, most people any good? Or is that just... Well, but the example you told me, you just said, is they were actually working on this they invention prior. But they might have not filed, they, 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 it was one of their 10 ideas, they may have not filed a patent this quick. They saw that you, somebody on the other side of the mm -hmm. country somewhere, is on the same track. Well, it sounds like in that case, they, they're an independent inventor that didn't use the publication, so if they file first, they have superior rights. Right, so the publication worked as a detriment to mm -hmm. the original inventor, right. is what I'm saying. Right. Yeah, but... Uh, but the original inventor would have been in trouble anyhow, except for that the other inventor just well, didn't file a patent application. They just went and filed their provisional on that same date. They're in better shape. They They're would be in better shape. shape. Yeah. They would have filed yeah. first. But if that other guy who saw the publication had not invented anything prior to seeing that publication, then once he saw the publication, right. then he, he, he filed a patent application based on that publication. Yeah. He would lose. Sure. But how do you prove that? We don't know yet. If you have a notebook, that would right. be helpful. The other guys probably wouldn't have a notebook. Right. Or if you try to come up with a notebook. Well, I mean, I might have presented to the club here on one of our members only meeting and had the non-disclosed. I might have presented an invention and then never did it. And then saw it six months later. Somebody published it and then said, hey, I'm going to file it. I had proof that I showed it. Yeah. to these people, you know, that kind of thing. So a lot of times there is, even whether it's the inventor's notebook or other things, mm -hmm. a lot of times there is a path mm -hmm. of some yeah, kind of proof. proof. You right. had somebody make a prototype in the local machine shop. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there's a right. whole pretty good. It's yeah. possible. It's yeah. possible. So that's yeah. why the best practice is to file early and often. <laughs> <laughs> do, yes. you, do you recommend a certain non-disclosure form? Um, I've never really asked this question. Is there anybody that sells this somewhere? Like, you, you can Google it. Right. You could just Google it. Okay, that's what I figured. Okay. Yeah, but so you get what you pay for too. So right. you, you may have something that's almost worthless too. You, um, it could be something ridiculous that 
is unenforceable. On your non-disclosure form? Yeah. yeah. If you could just Google it, you don't know. You don't know who wrote it. You don't know if it's ever been litigated. You don't know if that if there's terms in there that are unenforceable. So, but I'm a lawyer, so I, I've got my point of view. I Google forms, but but I review them very carefully and, and make sure and I take out stuff that doesn't make sense that I think would be harmful to the document and to whatever you're trying to protect. Yes, ma'am. I'm just wondering, you mentioned the possibility of a web, website. What if you publish on your own website? You know, until the rules are promulgated, we're just all, these are kind of hypotheticals. It's hard to, until the rules are actually written out, the law is written, but the rules, the law is written and it's published under the 35 USC, United States Code. But the rules will come out on something called the 37 Code of Federal Regulations, 37 CFR. But they haven't been promulgated, they haven't been written yet, they haven't been, so I don't know. Um, your website supposedly is, is available to the public, but maybe you have pages on your website that's not indexable, that hasn't been, a certain page may not be accessible by Google, that you can only access your page if you happen to know the exact URL. So would that be considered a publication? I, I don't know. That, that's still being talked about, and it depends on what the rules finally say. Yes. How are you keeping up on all this stuff? I mean, are you going to workshops and seminars, or are you just reading through piles of information? How are you keeping yeah. up with all of this? Um, there's other, there's listservs and websites that, that patent practitioners get together and talk about these things. A lot of this uh, presentation came from Gene Quinn. He's kind of well known in the uh, inventors world and patent world. Um, uh, other other parts of it came from the USPTO directly, um, but NAP, National Association of Patent Practitioners, they, they have a listserv and we talk about these things. Uh, and Is then there any particular website that kind of dumps it down for the, you know, non-attorney and, and kind of so we can understand it? And, and well, um, another place is Patently O Blog, Patently O Blog, Patently Dash O Dash Blog. Um, that's for mostly patent attorneys, so I, I, I don't know if it's dumbed down. It's written pretty much plain English, but it's it's written geared towards patent attorneys, so um, I don't know if it's if it's easy enough. Wikipedia maybe, but you got you got to you know anybody can con contribute to Wikipedia, so you don't really know whether or not that stuff is accurate. The stuff I've read on Wikipedia has been pretty accurate for the most part, so. That's pretty much a general type of uh, encyclopedia that kind of makes it easy for the layperson to understand. But I, I looked up Wikipedia for America Invents Act, and they didn't cover a lot of this stuff that I covered today. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Do you have a certain field of expertise? Well, I'm a mechanical engineer. Um, uh, that's my undergraduate degree. And uh, but when I first started doing patent law, I did a lot of semiconductor work. I've done some software work, uh, but uh, so the, the, probably the easy way to answer that question is the things I stay away from are hardcore chemistry inventions, 
um, pharmaceutical stuff, but any sort of hardware, most software applications I, I handle, medical apparatus, um, home, uh, well, consumer goods, and on my website, um, and I have cards here, uh, I have a list of some of the patents I've worked on, and, and, and some, uh, most of them are issued, so you can look and see what I've done. people's questions on the side? Or? Sure. Okay, sure. so Michael, we'll stay for a little while and um, feel free to, you know, indulge in the goodies. And uh, again, if you are looking to join, uh, I have membership applications up here, so please uh, come see me. And I uh, hope you enjoyed our, our uh, monthly meeting. I hope to see you back again. So thank you all for coming. Thank you.